press isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy. We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. Yeah. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast, and I'm your host, Jane Whitney. I recently spotted someone wearing a mask that captured the angst of our uniquely challenging times. It read, I wear this mask because I want to live until November 3rd. Republicans and Democrats alike are anxious to vote in what could be the most consequential election of our lifetimes. On this episode of the podcast, we'll talk about the state of the race and fast forward through the next 100 days to share predictions about who might win. Joining us are three of the best in the business. Senior CNN commentator and chief strategist for the 2008 and 2012 Obama presidential campaigns, David Axelrod. Senior fellow at the Niskanen Center and host of the new series, The Election Whisperer, Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer. And NBC News national political correspondent and master of the legendary big board, Steve Kornacki. Our town hall was recorded live on July 26, 2020. We are so grateful to have all of you with us. And we are going to talk about the contours of the race, uh, the House, the Senate, presidential, state races. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how you all evolved into becoming political gurus. And David, I'm going to start with you. Because when you were 13, you stole time from preparing for your bar mitzvah to sell buttons for Robert F. Kennedy and you majored in political science at the University of Chicago. You became a political reporter at the Chicago Trib. And then you went on to uh, orchestrate two of the most legendary campaigns in history. Now, you've been quoted as saying you went into politics because you're an idealist. I have to ask you, after the last three and a half years, are you still an idealist? Yeah, no, I'm an idealist. I, uh, you know, I wrote a book called Believer, and that's my my that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I was inspired to politics uh, at a very early age, as you point out. I went and saw John F. Kennedy when I was five years old. He came camp. This so long ago, a, a Democrat was campaigning for votes in New York City, twelve days before the 1960 election, and um, uh, you know, I, I I was inspired then by the pageantry of democracy, it felt so important. But he also said something then, which is, I'm not running on the ticket that says, uh, if you elect me, things will be good. Uh, He said, uh, uh, being an American citizen in the 1960s is a hazardous occupation filled with peril, but also hope, and we will decide in this election which path we take. And that's sort of the way I think about politics. Politics is, is, is the instrument that democracy hands us to grab the wheel of history and turn it in the right direction. It doesn't mean that you always win or that the wheel always is turned in the right direction, but you always have a chance to correct that course. Uh, and it's a very vital uh, process. So yeah, there's been a lot to be depressed about, uh, but there's also a lot to be energized by. And um, I still believe in this process. I'm going to ask you, I have to ask you, what have you been energized by? Well, energized by the need to, 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 uh, to, to revitalize our democratic institutions here. I mean, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that's on the ballot in November is um, 
is do we believe in things like the rule of law? Do we believe in things like, uh, you know, in the sanctity and integrity of our democratic institutions? Uh, that Those are weighty, weighty issues. And uh, democracy was never meant uh, as a gift. It is, a, it is an ongoing uh, assignment or responsibility, and we all have a piece of that. So uh, the country is challenged right now. This is sort of an existential time. Uh, I find that energizing. Your parents were also, from what I understand, quite an influence in shaping your values. Your father fled religious persecution in Ukraine and immigrated to this country when he was a child and then eventually yes. became a psychologist. And your mother was an ad executive. And once again, early on, it seems that you developed this sense of fighting for the underdog. And beyond that, something that you just talked about a little bit, which is that government can be a force for good, which is frankly a concept that is not widely shared at this point. It, it may not be, uh, and there's been a 40 year campaign to uh, undermine the concept that government could be uh, a force for good and uh, it has had an impact. Uh, but I also can tell you, Jane, that uh, when I was in the White House in the two years that I was in the White House, um, I, I was there during the, the fight for the Affordable Care Act. Um, I have a child who has a chronic illness. I was one of those American families who almost went bankrupt uh, as a result of medical costs uh, because my daughter's condition was so severe. Um, I wept the night the Affordable Care Act passed because I knew that there were millions of families that wouldn't have to go through what my family went through. Um, so I've seen government work. I've seen it at its best. Uh, not perfect, a difficult process, but it's easy to succumb to the cynicism. And then there are moments like that that are sublime. And I run into people all the time who were helped by that law, sometimes in ways that save their lives. And uh, that to me is what politics is about. It's not about whether the red team wins or the blue team wins. It's about what you can do to make a difference in the lives of people and in the lives of the country. You mentioned your daughter, Lauren, who does suffer from its epilepsy, correct? Epilepsy, yes. And you had to make a choice back when um, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, there were other friends of yours that were looking at running for the presidency. And um, it, Hillary had been instrumental in helping to really garner support for a foundation that I think your wife had started for the yes. epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And you had to make this, you had to make this choice um, yeah. and decide who you were going to help. And I mean, how do you decide something like that? Yeah, well, I had five uh, former clients uh, at one point in the presidential race. Um, and Hillary Clinton, uh, I, you know, I, I, I consider her a friend and she was um, an extraordinary force in, in supporting the cause of epilepsy research and in helping us get our organization going. She was the first speaker at our first event in 1999, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. Um, and uh, I, will always, uh, I will always appreciate her for that. And it was my intent to stay out of the 2008 election until Barack Obama, uh, who was a friend of mine uh, dating back to when he returned from Harvard Law School to Chicago, uh, decided to run because I thought he was the right person for the time. I thought he was the candidate who best uh, 
who best uh, reflected those ideals that I was talking about earlier and who best fit the moment. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I ended up uh, signing on to that campaign, being deeply involved in that campaign. Um, and it's painful. It's painful to, uh, primaries are terrible things if you're in politics, because oftentimes you are um, involved in campaigns and you have friends uh, on the other side of it, and you come together after those primaries uh, in pursuit of larger uh, goals. But uh, that was a that was a painful uh, choice. But I think, um, you know, obviously, I feel strongly that I made the right choice. Want to talk about Rachel the choice that you made because uh, before you catapulted to the national stage by nailing the results of the 2018 midterms. You were uh, a single mother in Oregon. And then as legend has it, Rachel, one night you were watching another Rachel, Rachel Maddow, and somehow she inspired you. How did she inspire you? What happened? I mean, it wasn't exactly like on one spontaneous night, but um, I was a single mom. I was um, working a dead end job at a, as doing human resources, but not for good money. I actually had no insurance for a good chunk of my working life. So uh, when David talks about people who were affected by um, who personally understood what Obamacare meant for people. I mean, I'm certainly one of those people who solved that night knowing what it would mean for people to have health care. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I started listening to, to, you know, podcasting and radio was at its internet infancy at that time period. And I knew I wanted to go to college. It was open to me because I was a mom at that point and financial aid becomes open to you. And uh, Rachel Maddow had a PhD in political science, and I just thought, well, you must need education to break into that as an analyst. I didn't realize, like, you know, the blog world was coming, um, you know, in the future, too. So I, I enrolled in a community college, and then I um, realized pretty quickly that you could study politics, and it was amazing to me that you could do that. And I thought, too, the more uh, achievable goal would become a, to become a professor. And... Uh, I didn't really, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no chaperoning. I had no, uh, my parents didn't go to college at all. So I didn't know uh, what I was doing when I enrolled in uh, my graduate degree, when I left um, Oregon, that I would never get to go home again. <laughs> and I had uh, kind of abandoned the idea that I would ever be an analyst, but I, you know, was pursuing the goal of at least becoming a professor, which is not a guarantee. I mean, only about 50% of people who get a PhD actually get a job in the academy. So I was feeling at least fortunate that I had a job teaching. It wasn't a tenure track job, but I also got um, lucky that there was a polling outfit at the university that no one could could um, was using really. So I, I had an opportunity to turn it into a really nice um, opportunity. And I, I just seized Carpe Diem, you know? And so I started doing tracking polls, which nobody had ever done there and and uh, used that to kind of build a name. But it was really that, that Clinton loss, I had been uh, formulating my theory for my forecasting work, um, you know, what really from the right. Obama, Obama midterms is, is um, those very first midterms for the Obama presidency is what took took me into that. So, And you, we're going to talk about your theory in a minute um, because it has upended a lot of political pro prognostication. But you also didn't have any role models because it, it's, there are not that many women in forecasting or doing what you do. Why is that? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's there's two things going on. I mean, when you come from um, like the working class, I mean, working class, like no college education type world, like there's two like different like strands there. Like it's different to go to like a high caliber university and kind of network into that world, I think. So when you look at like the journalist world and the punditry world, there's a certain like a pedigree that comes into, I think, those positions. And then to couple it with gender is very different. But there's a lot of women that do polling. So polling is a, a very, actually one of the better uh, represented uh, for females um, industries and women are doing just incredible work in the polling field. But in terms of of, of releasing like a um, horse raced, um, you know, with an election model, like a forecasted quantitative model. Uh, there isn't another woman doing that. Uh, but Amy Water Waters, I just want to mention, has been doing, um, you know, race handicapping for a long time. So she was there in that space. Um, no, right. No, Amy. Amy's Amy Walter is very, very highly regarded with right. the Cook political part uh, report. Right. And you certainly have fast tracked uh, very, very quickly to the national stage. And I want to ask you about something because you're a serious political scientist and yet you seem almost, I'm going to read a tweet that you, you just tweeted a couple days ago. Um, you're afraid, aren't you? If you're no, running for office, killing your voters, <laughs> killing your voters via incompetence is a bad strategy. Yeah. Now, you, I mean, that's kind of just a sampling of the sensibility that you bring to this. Yeah. Um, how do people react to that? Oh, you know, I, I would suppose that the, if you were a really straight edge, boring individual, I would not recommend following me on Twitter or really watching my show, though my show is super wonky because when we think about like what you can get on a cable news program, no offense to Steve, um, you've got like two or maybe like tops 10 minutes to talk about very complex um, political science topics and it doesn't lend itself well to that medium. So my show is at the same time very, very wonky, very data-driven and very political science PhD oriented. So it's like going to a college lecture, but it's also going to have a lot of South Park and Daily Show and John Oliver elements to it. So it's definitely for coolish people. Yeah. Steve, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the night, that very emotional night that I think a lot of people saw, which was the night that Chris Matthews resigned on air, which was a shock to most people in and of itself. And you stepped into that chair. And live television is really like working without a net anyway. Um, you went on to complete the show, and then at the end, you did this really touching homage to Chris Matthews, and you talked about the fact that politics can be a dirty business, and yet Chris saw something, so he had a passion for politics, but he also saw, saw something noble in it. And I guess I'm going to ask you sort of a variation of what I asked David, which is given what we're seeing these days with the, with the ugliness and the divisiveness and the bitterness and the toxicity, um, do you see nobleness in politics? I see the possibility of it. Um, and I think it depends sometimes what level, you know, you're looking at. I mean, it, you know, part of the story of modern politics is the story of the nationalization of politics. And so we're always talking about what's happening in D.C. and the president and the Senate. And, you know, there's sort of a common language there wherever you live in the country. But, of course, there is still a, a local political world 
um, that exists in, in every corner of the country. And that's actually, you know, where I got my start was covering uh, politics in New Jersey. In New Jersey, you know, one of the more interesting states. Um, I, my, I think I was mentioning to you before we went on the air, my family is from, uh, my mother's family at least, is from Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, that was actually sort right. of where I got my uh, my first taste of politics, somewhere between where Santa Petro went to prison and Bergen got indicted. And I mean, I remember all those characters and you know, Waterbury, I, I found it fascinating to watch the local level because it was about jobs. It was about contracts. It was about bread on the table for the people. Um, and I found politics at that level very interesting. And when I went to New Jersey to cover it, um, you know, I think I found something similar there in, in sort of county and city politics. And so I think that level still exists around the country. Um, it, it's not you know, necessarily that visible at a national level. Um, but I think there is still nobility and a lot that goes on there. And I think at the national level, I think there is there's the possibility of nobility. I think there's a, um, I think there are a lot of people trying to make sense of a moment that, that I don't know anybody can make sense of right now um, and, and, and to try to find out, um, you know, how they can fit into it. But um, it's it's an unusual moment. But I also, you know, when I, I, I get tempted to say it's, it's never been this bad, it's ne- I think if you go back. You know, to the 19th century, <laughs> if you go back to the founding days, um, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't uh, we didn't have national television. We didn't have television. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have social media. We didn't have iPhones to put it in people's faces every day. Um, but you had uh, look at the partisan press, you know, look at the old uh, newspapers you know, of the 19th century um, aligned with one party or the other dedicated only to destroying the other party by whatever means necessary. Nothing off limits, you know, anybody's personal life, nothing off limits um, in terms of libel, in terms of slander. Um, We've had some we've had some rough moments in our past. We've had some long, rough periods in our past. I think there's a there's a visibility to everything that happens now because of the nationalization of politics and because of the evolution of media. Um, And I'm curious. I think what keeps me interested is I'm I'm very curious to see where this goes. And I, I really I don't know. And I don't think anybody does. You graduated from Boston University, and then at some point you auditioned to be a game show contestant. You wanted to <laughs> yeah. be on. Is it? I mean, it, I hope That's is that true. true? You went. You wanted to be on game shows. Okay. You also are a total sports geek. It's my yeah. understanding. And you would, if you had a fantasy, you would uh, call either a basketball or a football game. And in your spare time, for fun, you kind of go through Wikipedia and look up trivia. I mean, you're like this, there's a little bit of a savant quality. And I say that in the nicest possible way. Um, Everything you've done seems to have been, I I mean, to do what you do on the air, people just, uh, and we're going to show a clip of that in in a second, but... um, how do you explain? Is it just a gift that you're able to sort of <laughs> hit the big board? You know, I don't I don't know if I'd call it a gift. Uh, it, it seems something I'm cut out for. I remember back in uh, 2014, you know, I've been here at, at MSNBC since about 2012. In fact, it was 2012. And in 2014, Chuck Todd, who, who'd been doing um, a different daily show on MSNBC at that point, he now hosts one at, at five o'clock. He had one in the mornings. At that point, and he got the job as uh, as host of Meet the Press, and he'd been doing you know the board for MSNBC on election nights, and he was not going to be doing that anymore now that he was you know at uh, at MS at uh, NBC and in that role, and um, you know, I just remember um, you know my boss calling me and, and and asking if I might be interested, and that was 
that was the thing that I always wanted to do here. That was the thing that I, I, I thought I knew how to do. Um, I, I tell people, I guess I try to be mindful, um, you know, in my career of, you know, the idea of having a lane and, and staying in it um, and, and trying not to stray from it. I can't say I've always stuck to that, but I, I the older I get, the more sense that makes. And I, I just think I, I understand, um, or at least I have a, a decent grasp of um, sort of numbers, political geography, demographics, um, you know, sort of interpreting election results as they come in, understanding, um, you know, okay, if this county came in, but this one's still out, you know, what does that mean? Um, I, I'm just interested in it. I'm drawn to it. I, I couldn't exactly explain why. There's something there, you know, that, that has to do with numbers. Um, my mom will, will, will say she can remember, you know, when I was, I think, six years old, you know, I got into basketball and every morning I'd run outside. We lived in Massachusetts. I'd run outside, get the Boston Globe and I get the Celtics box score from the night before. And I, you know, I could still tell you, you know, basketball stats from like the 85, 86 season. Um, I, look, I'm not very good on defense policy. I'm not very good on national security policy, but I, I, I think elections, political history, numbers, that sort of thing. Just it just interests me. I couldn't exactly tell you why. You're very, very good at that. And perhaps that's been why people have referred to you as a cross between political human Google and a wonk Superman. And for the two people, perhaps, in the universe who don't know what you do with that legendary big board, we are going to show a clip of it right now. And this was supposed to be Sanders' big night. This was supposed to be the night that Sanders ran up a margin of 250, 300 delegates out of California. It was supposed to be the night that Sanders won Texas, won it probably by double digits, got a big delegate hall there, got something big out of Colorado. He did win that. Give him credit for that. It was supposed to be the night when he basically drew even across the southeast, maybe won a North Carolina, maybe won a Virginia. He lost Virginia by 30. He was hoping to beat Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, knock her out, and shut Joe Biden out of delegates. Instead, Joe Biden wins Massachusetts. He was open to win Minnesota. Joe Biden won Minnesota. Joe Biden, coast to coast here. This is a night for Joe Biden. This was supposed to be the Sanders delegate night. And when you look at all those patterns you guys were just talking about demographically and what comes next, I mean, you could just see it. Next week, we're going to be in Mississippi. If you look what happened next door in Alabama, if you look what's happening with the black vote all around the South, Mississippi is not a big state, but Mississippi can be a big delegate state for Joe Biden. If he's getting the margins we're seeing all throughout the South in a state like Mississippi, he could net over Sanders, we're going to say like 30 delegates just out of Mississippi. Hmm. Michigan is the big state that's up next week. We'll all be talking about Michigan. There's 125 delegates. Let's say Sanders wins, but it's a close race. Sanders will net five, 10 delegates. By what we're seeing demographically is Sanders is due to take some huge hits in the South, in Mississippi, mm -hmm. in Georgia, in Louisiana and in Florida. His polling has been terrible in Florida. And so if he's in an even race delegate wise right now or down a little bit, look at these hits that he is about to absorb. Where can he make up for him on this map? And that coalition everybody's just describing, very hard to see that at this Biden point. Biden has. Want to thank NBC for letting us use that clip. But I, I have one more question for you at this point, Steve, which is most people couldn't pick out Iowa on that map. Let's just be honest about it, okay? So you can pick out not only Iowa, but the 4th District. You can tell us why Loudoun County, Virginia matters in an electoral sense. You can tell us how much of the vote is still out in Ada County, Idaho. And the question I have for you is, have you ever had a frontal lobe moment where you absolutely were at that board and you froze? 
Oh, I've had several. Yeah, no, it's and, and, you know, the challenge right now, first of all, you know, for what I do looking forward to November is the the sort of information flow, the data flow we're used to, we've become accustomed to for election nights is completely scrambled this year. You know, mail in voting um, do the ballots count if they're you know, mailed by Election Day, they have to be received by Election Day. When is the state going to report them out or individual counties going to report them out faster? We're going to have votes coming from different buckets, you know, same day, you know, votes that were cast in person on Election Day, votes that were mailed in. We're going to have different buckets of votes. We're going to see results. We're not going to know which bucket they're coming from. Um, There are challenges this November that, um, you know, I'm doing my best to prepare for. We're doing our best to prepare for. um, But very little of what I've seen and done so far can really prepare me for it because there's just so many uh, unknowns and uncertainties there. Um, So there's the potential for what you're describing, certainly. You know, I, I, it's not even election night, you know, th- this uh, November. It could be several days. It could be a week. Um, there are states right now that have had recent primaries a month ago where we don't have the results yet. It could be a month in some cases uh, to get real results from some important states. So th- that's what's happening, you know, this November. That's going to be a challenge. I, I can remember um, Iowa, the Iowa caucuses this past uh February. I remember it's been such a weird year. If folks remember the Iowa caucuses, they were trying a new thing this year Um, in the interest of transparency, in the interest of having a more democratic small d process. They were going to report out the incremental voting steps. You know, the caucus is just this incredibly complicated thing. You show up, you declare your preference when you're standing in the room. Uh, If your candidate doesn't have enough support, you can go join another campaign. So they were going to give you the results of every step of the way in that process. And it just turned out they were totally ill-equipped to pull that off. And so we were standing there, you know, on caucus night, no results uh, the entire night. You know, we had a whole special, I think we had six hours of coverage planned, did not get a single uh, result in that night. Then they told us the next day, and I'm not at 11 a.m., no, 2 p.m. They finally said, I think it was 5 p.m. Eastern, the day after the Iowa caucuses, they said, we're going to basically report out just about all the results all at once. I think about 70% of the results all at once. And um, so I was standing there. We're at the board. It's, it's, it, as soon as the numbers come to us from the Iowa Democratic Party, we're going to put them in the board. I don't know exactly when that's going to be. They tell me on the set, just just shout when the numbers pop up. So the numbers pop up. I shout and, and I'm looking at something I'm not used to, which is everything. Um, and, and there was a, a, a moment there. I was trying to go through it all. And I basically uh, I literally uh, ran out of breath and I had to I had to call uh, call over to Brian Williams and say, look, I, I need a two minute break here. Um, I, I can't finish talking and breathing. So um, that was that was one of the, uh, the lower moments, ha- I guess. It has happened. OK. Uh, uh, let, at this point, we're going to talk about the, the contours of the race. And David, I want to ask you about the fact that 72 percent of Americans think the country's on the wrong track. 19 percent of it think we're doing just fine. We don't. 19 percent. And um, pride in America is at its lowest ebb, according to Gallup. And yet 94% of Republicans are just yearning to get to the polls to vote for Mr. Trump. So the question is, with the talk about the blue tsunami, and we all know, I think, what the polls look like at this point, it's, we're 300 days out as of today. Is this anybody's race as far as you're concerned? Well, first of all, we're not 100 days out. We're 100 days out till Election Day, but voting starts in seven states in 55 days. And uh, this is a year when, as uh, Steve was alluding to, many ballots are going to be cast uh, in the mail, early voting, uh, 
COVID is going to distort that process and drive more people uh, to different uh, modes of voting, not just election day voting. But set that aside for a second. No, I look, the fact you mentioned the right track, wrong track number, the president's approval rating is hovering around 40 percent and some polls lower than that. Um, that is a big warning sign. If you look at history of the presidents who have been in that place at this time uh, have not been reelected. Um, uh, so and, and his uh, and there's a story that is dominating. And the reason we're here today uh, dominating our news uh, and the lives of our people, which is the coronavirus story, his ratings on that are disastrous. Uh, and so, um, you know, you can't look at the, no, the, the, the polling right now and uh, and the situation, the prospects of improvement anytime soon and not say you'd much rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump. That said, we wouldn't have predicted four months ago where we are today. We don't know what's going to occur in the next three months. Uh, we've got uh, a closely divided country. Uh, we've got uh, events that are going to come up, including three debates, presidential debates. Um, you know, so it would be foolish uh, for anyone to say this race is over, but it also would be foolish for anyone to say they'd rather be President Trump at this juncture than, than Joe Biden. That was David Axelrod, and you're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. We're going to take a brief break, then we'll have more conversation with our guests when we return, and questions from our virtual audience, too. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. I'm Jane Whitney. This conversation was recorded on July 26, 2020. Our guests are senior CNN commentator David Axelrod, the election whisperer Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer, and NBC News national political correspondent Steve Kornacki. We have had a lot of questions from our viewers that have come in in advance. And the number one question that was asked, and it's been asked by Richard Krasnow and John Connell and Brian Boyer, among others, and we're going to have uh, Phoebe ask it on camera in a second, has to do not with 2020, but 2016. So, Rachel, I want you to be on notice because I just want to get a clarification as to the answer to this question. Here's Phoebe. Hi, I'm Phoebe. I'm from New York. I'd like to address my question to all three panelists. Why do you think the predictions made in the 2016 presidential election were so wrong? And therein, it's addressed to everyone, and that's fine, but I'm going to start with Rachel because therein lies the source of the incredible PTSD among Democrats who cannot believe that somebody who looked like he wasn't going to win in 2016 won, and now he's evolved into, as you say, the Terminator that now he's invincible and of course he will win again no matter what. So could you just clarify without doing a doctoral thesis, what, what was the status of the, of the 2016 um, polling? Was it, was it wrong? Was it right? What was it? Yeah, I, I feel bad because I'm going to shamelessly plug the article that I have pending in Market Watch. It's going to be coming out anytime. I mean, sometime today, sometime tomorrow. Literally, it's on this topic, and it answers this exact question with a great deal of specificity. But it talks about 
like specifically why why were the polls wrong? Uh, and really, the polls nationally, I should also say, were actually quite right. I mean, nationally, they predicted a three-point yeah. Clinton win, and that's almost exactly what we got, right? Uh, so when we think about what the polls being wrong, we're really talking about state-specific polls and really talking a lot about those Midwestern polls. And so the article talks about, um, I think, a well, a better-known factor is the idea that pollsters were over representing college educated voters, right? So I talk about that, but um, there were other things going on and they were, it turns out the polling data was sending us and I was a fresh out of graduate school person starting my polling career, uh, but uh, sending pollsters, everyone, analysts, uh, pundits, forecasters, very clear, two couple clear signals. Number one, usually when you get into a presidential election, especially down the stretch the last couple of weeks, you have very few people who are undecided. It's less than 10 and usually less than five, it's about 5%. In 2016, in October, at the end of October, it was 15% of the electorate in some of these polls telling us we, they were undecided. And the idea that the narrative was certainty about the outcome with that many voters undecided it, it, when looking back at it, at it with uh, you know backwards looking, it, it's it's crazy, right? It's like we sh the narrative should have been there's so much unsettled um, you know component to this electorate that we that anything could happen with that amount of um, undecided voters, and then in addition to that. We had a lot of voters who were indicating third-party balloting. Now, in our in the pollsters' defense for this and pundits, it's well known that polls overestimate third-party balloting. So ignoring that signal is understandable, but ignoring the undecideds that is a different it's a different story. And so now we've learned, right? And so I go through in this article and talk about how our 2020 polling is very very different. I mean, we already have very few undecided showing up in this data. We have a lot of party unity. Um, our, Jane just talked about 94% of Republicans rallying around Trump. Well, we already have 91, 93% of Democrats rallying around Biden, and we haven't even had the convention. That is 10 points higher than we ever got with Clinton until the very end. So uh, we are in good shape in terms of the reliability of this data. All right, Steve, I want to ask you about then uh, the enormous lead that Mr. Mr. Biden has at this point, which historically hasn't happened in terms of its duration or its its numbers since 1996 when Bill Clinton was leading Bob Dole. How trustworthy, we know that the, the race is probably going to narrow, but how trustworthy is that lead? Rachel says the polling is better as of 2020 than it was four years ago. What do you think about uh, Mr. Biden's lead at this point? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that the numbers are, this is a bigger lead, you know, for Biden than Clinton had for just about all the campaign nationally. This is also something you're seeing um, in the state polling. Um, I think there has been a real effort made by pollsters since 2016. The problem in 2016 was the state polls. Um, there were barely any, if any, really high quality, credible polls out of Michigan, you know, for instance, in 2016. You know, state that hadn't gone for a Republican since Bush Sr. in 1988. Uh, everybody knows to poll Michigan now. Um, Wisconsin, you know, there's there's a good poll out of Wisconsin, the Marquette Law Poll. We were all looking um, at that poll. They were coming out every couple of weeks in the fall of 2016. I remember they used to do a, 
a webcast to release the results live. I, I was watching it every time they uh, they came out with a new one. And you're saying, geez, if this is ever, you know, Clinton by two, Clinton by one, Trump ahead. If there's anything ever like that, there it is. There's your sign that that Trump vote is popping up in the states where you figured it had the potential uh, to pop up. But no, that was, you know, six, seven points for Clinton pretty consistently. Um, so you are having problems at the state level with the polling. Um, there's been a lot of debate among pollsters, among the, the, the professionals about how to account for that. It has to do with the, the divide between white voters who have a college degree, white voters who don't have a college degree. I know Marist, Marist University, which is the polling partner uh, for NBC, has come up with their own version of how to account for that, released their uh, their first poll under this methodology today. In fact, it was it was in Arizona. Um, Joe Biden in this NBC Marist poll leading by five points there. Um, see, you pretty consistently see right now for the last month, at least a large around double digit lead nationally for Joe Biden and a corresponding lead that you would expect uh, for him at various state levels. So it's a I, I you know, I I am open to the possibility that there is some kind of a shy Trump voter out there. You know, you have this discussion. There are a certain number of Trump voters who don't want to tell the pollsters who are who are not being accounted for in the polling. I I don't entirely rule that out. I'm not sure how to measure that. I also my sense, though, is that's something that might be an extra point. Um, maybe um, it's not something that's going to erase a 10 point deficit. It's not going to take something to take take a 10 point deficit in the polling and suddenly you look up um, and, and, and Trump is leading. So, um, look, if my sense of this is if Trump is able to close this gap, if he's able to get it to about five points, I'd say about five, anything inside of five, I think then start saying, all right, remember, he doesn't necessarily need to win the popular vote here. He could lose the popular vote by a sizable margin if, um, you know, if it's distributed in the right states. Um, but, you know, right now, I don't see any imbalance between the state and national polls. So the way I'm looking at it is if we start seeing a national poll that has it Biden plus four, Biden plus five, something like that, I'm starting to say this is getting right. very competitive. But at 10, mm. Okay. We've got another variable uh, in this election that's become sort of the hottest guessing game of the moment. And uh, at this point, I think, David, I'm going to ask you to take this. We're going to listen to Kim from New York, and, and I'd like you to answer her question. Here's Kim. I'm Kim, and I'm from New York City. And as a black woman, I would just love to see a woman of color chosen as the VP pick in this upcoming election. And frankly, I would really love for my daughters to be able to see it, too. So I'm curious about the qualifications and the characteristics that Biden's team will prioritize when choosing his running mate so that we can get out the vote and win this election. Thank you so much for your thoughts on this. David, you were part of the vetting team that vetted Joe Biden to be Barack Obama's vice president. What should the strategy be in choosing the vice presidential pick? Well, and, and I think Rachel has a different view on this than I do, uh, but um, I am not, I'm not a huge believer that the vice presidential candidate uh, is someone who wins elections for candidates. They can, they can help lose elections for candidates, but we really haven't seen a vice presidential candidate kind of tilt an election uh, in a significant way, uh, maybe since Lyndon Johnson. And the reason he did was because he helped carry the state of Texas, which was uh, essential to Kennedy winning a, a narrow uh, election. So I wouldn't approach it. I, I, I personally would not approach it as a sort of turnout mechanism because I, I'm not sure that it will be a turnout mechanism. Uh, but uh, 
there are short-term considerations. There may be candidates who, uh, uh, who would be less uh, of a target in, the, uh, in a general election. Understand right now, Donald Trump's frustration with Joe Biden is that Biden is culturally in, inconvenient. He is an older, white, moderate, uh, Irish Catholic, working class person from Pennsylvania, and it's very hard to turn him into the demonic, radical left candidate that uh, uh, you know that uh, that uh, Trump is painting in his rhetoric and in his campaign commercials. Um, so one thing I would be um, cognizant of is don't play into that. Uh, the second thing that I would say is you know when we did pick Joe Biden. Uh, we picked him for a variety of reasons uh, that some were short term, but a lot of them were long term. What kind of vice president would he be? Uh, and that is important. He turned out to be a great vice president. He was a loyal, impeccably loyal in public, unflinchingly honest in private when he was giving his counsel to the president. He took on major tasks for us. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, there was never a sense that he was... Um, sort of profiteering off of his vice presidency politically that he was that he was looking beyond uh, his uh, his work as vice president. Um, I, I suspect that Biden will want that and that may lead him to an African-American candidate. And there is, uh, given the period of time and history that we're in, there is uh, extra consideration that should be given to this whole issue of of, uh, of equity. Uh, given the base of the Democratic Party, given what we've been through as a country, given the need to unify the country. Uh, I'm sure that will be part of it. But at the end of the day, my guess is Biden will make a gut check as to who he wants to, who he feels most comfortable with as a partner uh, in what promises to be the most difficult set of circumstances any president has walked into since Franklin Roosevelt. So are you going to give us a name? As to who you, no. who you would no. recommend? No. no. Okay. I'm not going to do that. Somehow I knew that. Okay. I think that Rachel might, though, because as, as you had noted, Rachel has a very different point of view on this. And I think, Rachel, aren't you much more inclined to help Kim's dream come true, to have uh, an African-American woman take that slot? Yeah, I penned an op-ed. I'm delighted to hear that uh, I didn't know if David Axelrod knew who I was, so it's exciting to me that he knows about my argument. Um, however, you know, that was um, quite, a, quite a while ago, and, you know, we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot change. In terms of my forecasting work, you know, that, the forecast, it really, it was really talking about like a four-point advantage maybe for Biden in terms of negative partisanship, fueling this uh, coalitional dem Democrats and, and left-leaning independent turnout burst. And so, you know, having a female person of color, that what you could see the passion in that woman's eyes and, and like her daughters and her friends and her friends from church all getting excited about the uh, notion of that uh, rep descriptive representation, which Republicans, by the way, strategically get and always uh, try to tap into when they're looking for um, candidate recruitment. But, um, you know, in terms of now what we have with this pandemic, we are, are basically seeing two, two different trends 
totaling together to get to 10 points for Biden. And I call the second one in this uh, in this Market Watch um, you know, article called the pandemic effect, right? And that's adding an additional 5%. And so between the two of them, in terms of like having that female person of color on there for the turnout impact, I don't know that that's as important as it was before. But in terms of thinking about the mood of the uh, country coming from George Floyd's murder, the social and uh, justice and uh, racial justice protest that arose from it, coming into John Lewis's death, I, I think of the optics of two white moderate candidates heading the Democratic Party on the 2020 ticket, and I just can't imagine that the... It seems like that would be so immensely tone deaf that I, I just can't imagine it. Steve, let's get you to weigh in on this because African-Americans comprise 25% of the voting public. They certainly resurrected Joe Biden during the primary process. And there are people who say that, that an African-American woman as vice president would stoke turnout. Are you one of those folks? Uh, I'm not sure because I've seen you know the polling where you ask black voters, does the vice presidential pick need to be an African-American? And, and the answer um, doesn't come back as, as, as uniformly yes as, as you might assume. Um, I get the argument. The argument is basically this. If you look at the African-American turnout rate in the presidential election for the last four presidential elections, right? So you start with John Kerry in 2004. John Kerry narrowly lost to George W. Bush. The African-American turnout rate was 59% that year. Then you get the two Obama elections, 2008, 2012, and the African-American turnout jumps 65, 66%. Pretty significant jump. Pretty big reason he was able to win. Pretty big reason he was able to win so handily uh, in 2008. Then you go to 2016, Hillary Clinton, Tim Kaine, and you're back down to 60%. You're basically back to the John Kerry level. So you're away from that Obama level. You're back to the level you were at when you lost in 2004. So do you put an African-American candidate on the ticket? And do you get back to that Obama level? Do you get back to somewhere near that Obama level? I get the argument there. I think there's a question of you know, how much of that added enthusiasm was Obama-specific? How much of it was just about Obama himself? How much of it was about him being at the top of the ticket? How much of it was about the circumstances of being the first ever um, which you can never have again. It's just that's the fact of history. Um, so do you put an African-American candidate in the second slot and you find that it, it doesn't do anything in, in, in terms of juicing the turnout? I, I don't have a strong answer to that, but I, I see both arguments there. I see the argument that it could boost the turnout a couple points. That could be decisive. I see the argument that it, that it really wouldn't have an effect. Um, but I, what Rachel is saying, I think is, is, I think is where things are right now, which is we were having a conversation, I feel, at the end of last year and the start of this year, uh, before Biden really emerged, before the pandemic took hold and before we got where we are now, where it looked like this might be you know, a three, four, five point race. Um, and the conversation we're having right now is one about um, pretty big, pretty significant movement among white voters in particular. Um, it's, it's not just white voters with a college degree. It's also a fair share of white voters without a college degree, which we think of as Trump's base. We've seen pretty significant movement there away from Trump, people just changing their minds. Um, and, and you get to that level and you say, well, you, you really need to really, really, really juice the base. Um, it, maybe it's a different calculation at that point. David, this is it, it seems comparable to back in 2008 when there was a seismic force driving Barack Obama's lead, and that was at that point the financial crisis. That was kind of the, the guts of what was driving his popularity. And now 
this race seems totally tied up, as you noted earlier, in the pandemic. Now, Mr. Trump in the last week has changed his tone. He has started to promote the idea that people should wear masks. He's said that it's patriotic. He's restored the daily briefings. Do you think he can turn that part of this around or, or not? I think it's difficult because there's five months of history now of the president um, you know, engaging in a strategy of denial. Look, when the, the, the thing started, when the virus started surfacing, his concern was that he intended to run on a strong economy. That was the crux of his reelection strategy. And he knew that if he took these draconian steps uh, to try and subdue the virus, as many were suggesting rather early, uh, that he would he would hurt that economy, that, that he would potentially lose that issue. He finally, in mid-March, had to succumb to the reality of, uh, of where we were. He did take some of those steps. Uh, he urged the governors to take those steps, but only for a short time. And then uh, he wanted to, you know, he declared himself a wartime president and then quickly declared victory and said, let's move on. Well, the virus didn't get the message. And now we're kind of back to where we were, where he went through weeks and weeks of denial. Uh, and now, not because 145,000 people have lost their lives, but because the polling is bad, he's changed his strategy. And I think that's been pretty transparent. People are paying attention. Um, I think had he, you know, the irony, Jane, of this whole thing is had the president done what many governors in this country did, had he followed the advice of public health experts, had he been consistent in the guidance he was giving people, had he not tried to be both the president of the United States at, in a time of crisis and the leader of the resistance to the guidance his own government was issuing, he might be in a much stronger position right now. But I think it's going to be very hard for him to recover the, the impetus here the, uh, on this coronavirus issue, and uh, and uh, particularly because he insists in all of his briefings uh, on the notion that things are getting better, everything's we're headed in the right direction, notwithstanding the experience people around the country are going through, particularly in some of those states that he is most relying on in this election. So um, I think he's got a difficult road to hoe here. We're going to switch to messaging, but David, while I've got you, I just want to ask you, because Sheila Ryan, one of our viewers who's in Washington, D.C., wants to know how you think Joe Biden, there's a lot of concern about how he's going to hold up in the debates. What, what is your take on that? I think Donald Trump has done him an enormous favor because he has so lowered expectations for Joe Biden that uh, a reasonably good performance will look like uh, uh, Churchillian. Uh, you know, if Biden shows up and and simply pre presents a coherent uh, presentation. And I think he should not be underestimated uh, here. You know, we uh, in 2008, we debated Joe Biden many times. I worked with him in 2008 and 2012. He did quite well for us in vice presidential debates. And I think in his final debate with Bernie Sanders, he did. Uh, he did well. He should not be underestimated. He's, you know, I, I think that the first debate is going to be crucial. First debates for incumbent presidents, uh, Jane, are notoriously difficult. We experienced that in Denver in 2012 in the first debate with mm. Mitt Romney because presidents aren't used to having someone standing six feet away in their grill, treated as an equal, able to say whatever they want to say. And it'll be interesting to see how 
Donald Trump handles that after four years of commanding the stage on his own without anyone standing next to him, fact-checking him in the moment. Rachel, you are working with the Lincoln Project right now. You've been helping as an advisor, I believe, and, and as many people know, they are a group of, I guess, never-Trumpers is the best way, high-profile never-Trumpers. They've been cranking out one ad, one hard-hitting ad after another, and you take a pretty hard line when it comes to the fact that Democrats need to modernize that they are terrible at messaging, that Republicans nail it, and basically the Democrats sort of go through this embarrassed Democrat toe-in-the-sand routine. What should Democrats be doing? Yeah, this is true. I'm pretty critical of how Democrats do electioneering. I've studied it analytically, so to be fair, I've taken many years of studying the two electioneering campaign uh, approaches of these two parties from a scholarly perspective. And I was writing a book on um, you know, the members of the Lincoln Project. So when they asked me to be on their uh, senior advisory board, I had to disclose, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book that uh, entails your campaign techniques as a, a key um, component for political polarization and, and how we kind of got to where we are. So when I talk about Democrats needing to adapt some of these tech uh, techniques, I um, I do want to equivocate that there's a way to do better messaging without also causing the problems that have occurred on the uh, Republican side. And as a person who's devoted to civics and civic education and, and kind of repairing democracy, I really want to make sure that that comes across clearly. But yes, um, so for example, um, here's 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 the, the cold hard truth about Donald Trump's pandemic, right? Um, in terms of other democracies, the reasons why we're and we alone have a raging pandemic is that unlike other presidents, Donald Trump decided to outsource his presidential authority, failed to nationalize the response, and decided instead of a synchronized lockdown, he would just do um, you know this uh, every state for itself, every state decide whether or not it's going to shut down at all. So we had shutdowns going in an uncoordinated way. So, you know, those of us that sa sacrificed our time and shut ourselves into our houses in March and April did it all for naught because other states and other parts of the country didn't do any shutdown at all or reopened prematurely while their pandemics were still rising, like Texas and Florida and Georgia. So, like, that made our pandemics much more severe. It, it's raging unabated, um, you know, and, and that's the kind of messaging that I would like to see Joe Biden go up against Trump and make it very clear that the reason people can't send their children to school in the fall isn't some kind of happenstance or some kind of, you know, accident. It's a product of intentional mismanaged choices that Donald Trump made. He's the commander in chief of the nation. He controlled the response decisions. He decided not to nationalize the response. And now we and we alone, American exceptionalism, have this raging pandemic that is ruining our economy and ruining American um, jobs and livelihoods. So, you know, I think we really just need to be much more on the offensive about messaging. And what do you do with the representatives who are in districts uh, that were won in 2018 uh, that they won as congressionals that were won by Donald Trump, where they're in districts that are really 50-50 or worse? I mean, people like Alyssa Slotkin in, in the Michigan 8th or Abby Spamberger in the Virginia 7th. These, these folks are walking a tightrope. How are they supposed to take a hard line against Donald Trump? 
I would suggest that each of those members, if they haven't already done so, to read my research and my forecasting model that talks about suburban realignment and white, especially white college educated voters, because minority voters are already not voting for Republicans. So we'll talk about generational replacement in the suburb suburbs, because a lot of those Trump districts on the Cook PVI um, scoring sheet are going to be Biden districts after this next election. So they have a lot more, I think, agency than they allow themselves right now. And, you know, you have to keep in mind if a voter in a, in a swing district hears from one party that Democrats are terrible, horrible people, and then they hear from the other party, yeah, but I'm not one of those Democrats, then that's a double negative, right? So you really need to make an affirmative case for why uh, the Democratic Party's economic program is better for the middle class. And it should be a fairly easy case after 30 years of trickle-down economics, which has decimated the American middle class and left us now with two massive economic crises, neither of which Republican economics can answer. Uh, So it should be really easy, I think, for Democrats to go on the offensive here. Steve, I want to ask you about what's sort of called the Wisconsin strategy. At least there was a piece written about it, about the fact that in Wisconsin, they like the fact that that Joe Biden is not flashy, that he's not an historic candidate, that that basically their feeling is first do no harm, that that boring isn't all bad, to put it very simply. How do you feel about the Democrats' messaging and, and Joe Biden? You hear about the enthusiasm gap. That's another whole issue that, that uh, Democrats, they want to get rid of Donald Trump, but they're not so excited, gung-ho on Joe Biden. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's an enthusiasm gap. I mean, all the evidence shows Democratic voters, as you say, may not be wild about Joe Biden, but they are pretty wild about getting rid of Donald Trump. And That'll have the same effect in getting people out to vote, I think. But uh, look, I I think it's pretty simple why Biden's ahead right now. And our most recent poll, NBC Wall Street Journal poll, you ask folks, uh, do you approve or disapprove of how Trump is handling the coronavirus? About 30 percent say they approve of him. Nearly 60 percent say they disapprove. And right now, Joe Biden, who is universally known, who's deeply familiar to just about every voting age American, who's a former vice president of the United States and who is not saying much. And, and I, when I say by that is he's not taking any of the bait that the Trump folks are putting out there, trying to get him to wade into statue debates, trying to get him to wade into any of the culture war stuff. He's not saying much. He's not trying to say that much on coronavirus, except I would have done it differently. We would have had a better outcome. And he's basically making himself a vessel for that nearly 60 percent who say they disapprove of how Trump is handling the coronavirus. Now, I'll add one more on there. We also asked about another topic that I think is center stage, and that's race relations. And Trump's numbers are even worse on that. You're talking about a nearly 70 percent disapproval rate for Trump on those two questions. And if you put him head to head in our poll, who do you trust more, Trump versus Biden? It is overwhelming. I mean, at least two to one for Biden on those two topics. I think Biden's in a very unique position here. I I ask myself sometimes I try to play it out. You know, what if the Democrats had gone with a different candidate, a candidate who was not nearly as well known you know, to most Americans, a candidate who did not immediately pass those basic threshold questions you see in polling about, is this person qualified? Is this person competent? Does this person have the temperament to be president? Biden clears all of those, uh, all of those thresholds very easily. What if the Democrats hadn't nominated somebody like that? What if they had nominated somebody who was eagerly wading into all of these different culture war fights? I, I could only see from that the potential to complicate what is working so well for Joe Biden right now. And, and frankly, I'm not sure he has to do anything 
the rest of the way, besides continue to periodically speak up and deliver the kinds of messages he's delivering and, and let it kind of ride. If, if the underlying view of Trump's performance of the coronavirus doesn't change, I, I think the more Biden does, the more he risks messing that up. What would complicate it for Biden is if there was a change in the way people think about coronavirus and a change in the way they thought about Trump's handling of it. David, Democrats, basically, because of these very positive poll numbers, vacillate between being verklempt about the anxiety of the polls right and are things okay, and then everybody's really um, in a state at this point. And then delusions of grandeur, perhaps, where they're looking at states casting the net wide. We're going to go for 400, um, you know, electoral college votes and states like Texas and, and Georgia that formerly really weren't even on the radar are brought into play. And we have a, a viewer named Vernon who has a question about that. This is Vernon from Texas. Historically, making a run in Texas is no small feat. Is 2020 the year that the traditionally red state of Texas switches to the Democrats? David, do you have, is yeah. this the year well, that well, Texas let, let switches? Let, let me just say before I get to Vernon's question that uh, being verklempt is a perpetual state for Democrats. Um, that is a sport for <laughs> Democrats. Democrats are perpetually worried and hand-wringing. Um, that's point number one. Point number two, I just wanted to uh, Rachel said G the GOP is constantly uh, ahead of Democrats in terms of messaging and campaign techniques. Um, and um, I'm old enough to remember 2008 and 2012 when Republicans were complaining uh, about how the Democrats were running rings around them. Uh, so, you know, you're never as smart as you look when you're winning and you're never as dumb as you look uh, when you're losing to Texas. Uh, you know, one of the principles of running a presidential campaign is that you lock down those states that you know you have to have to get to 270 and you build from there. One of the mistakes that was made in 2016 is that more resources were spent in Arizona than, which was kind of an outlier possibility for Hillary Clinton than Michigan, which was a must have state for her that she ended up losing by 11,000 votes. So I think that the Biden campaign is approaching this in the right way, which is to make sure that they are fully invested and resourced in the states that they must win. Uh, there are a core six battleground states that they are focused on where their chances are the best uh, to, uh, to get to 270 and beyond 270. And then I think they can make some judgments later in the campaign based on their resources and how the campaign is um, how the campaign is is going in those states. Uh, in 2008, for example, um, John McCain pulled out of Michigan uh, in September. That allowed us to move resources to Indiana. And we won Indiana the first time a Democrat won Indiana since 1964. They may have those uh, opportunities. But Texas, understand, is a very expensive proposition to compete in Texas, which has 20 some odd media markets, expensive media markets included, is a hugely costly proposition. So it would have to be uh, a real, uh, a, a really um, uh, impressive uh, set of circumstances uh, in the fall uh, in terms of a wave that would cause the campaign to be able to do that. But I think they'll, they'll take a look, take a look at Texas. Georgia is an inviting uh, uh, potential target. Uh, you know, so Arizona? But they'll do it late. Well, Arizona, I think, is a is has now become a swing state. 
I think they're going to run a full-out campaign in Arizona, and they should. And they should understand. And I think Steve touched on this, and and Rachel touched on this. Uh, there's been a seismic shift in suburban areas in favor of. Uh, uh, of of Democrats and Biden, Maricopa County, which is the dominant county in Arizona, 54% of the state is largely a suburban area, and um, and there is there's ample evidence in polling. Biden has been ha- held a steady lead there. There's a strong Senate candidate there against a Republican incumbent. I think it's a great opportunity for Biden. I would treat it as a primary uh, battleground state. But uh, Texas is is an expensive proposition. Georgia, uh, less so. Ohio is one where uh, you're tempted to take a look. It's one Democrats have won uh, before Trump, uh, but also an expensive proposition. So I think these are later decisions for the campaign as they lock down the states that they must have to get to 270. On the other hand, it does look like, from what I know at least, Rachel, that there will be some pickups perhaps in the congressional races in Texas. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I would say about Texas. Here, I mean, here's the thing with my forecast, Texas, um, so, so here's the thing I would say with my forecast. Number one, Arizona has, I've had that state leaning Democrat for a long time. And that was before the pandemic kind of reset things and added a, a second strong fundamental in Joe Biden's favor, right? So now we have two fundamentals running in Joe Biden's favor. And really, I don't, I mean, I know people like to say, oh, a lot can happen between now and election day. And then they'll point to the pandemic as something that happened. But it is exceedingly rare um, you know, confident. I mean, so we're not going to see a transition from Trump. He's simply just not uh, managerially capable of that kind of transition. And uh, even though his rhetoric is changing about face masks, I mean, the White House daily schedule really reveals where the priorities lay on, on terms of like the pandemic management. So when we look at where the map's going to expand, I mean, the race uh, rating updates that I'm going to be making today later on move the Midwest completely out of reach for Trump and, um, you know, bring Florida into a lean Democrat, which I know is a race rating that also I think um, Cook or, or, or Sabato's crystal ball recently did. But yeah, I have all of the Midwest moving to likely Democrat from lean Democrat. And when we look at Texas, the story really there are the nine congressional races and only six of them are really attractive, but there are up to nine in this suburban um, realignment of Houston and of Dallas. And then there's two that duck into the Austin um, city limits that pick up like a tail of Austin. And those are huge races because 20, the 23rd was a race they left on the table just barely in 2018. And the 21st has a big name candidate, Wendy Davis running in it. And then below that, they're only nine seats away from flipping the Texas state house. And they picked up 12 seats in the 2018 cycle. So like where you look at where Texas is hot, it's those down ballot races. And because they're so hot and like the probability of that Texas state house flip is pretty high and picking up at least six of those, you know, four to six of these house races. That's where I think Biden's gonna see it attractive. Let's go back north. Rachel to Pennsylvania okay. because we have a question. We have a question from Leo in Central Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Leo from Central Pennsylvania, and my conservative friends tell me that just like in 2016, the secret Trump voters will come out in force 
to help him get elected in 2020. What can you tell me about that group of people? Thanks. Is that coming Steve to me? Steve touched on this. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. It's, but but I want to go go to you. Steve mentioned it a little bit earlier, but. But is there any data, these secret Trump voters, all these polls talk about the fact that a lot of people in Pennsylvania are absolutely convinced that their neighbors and their communities support Mr. Trump. So is there data at all to refute this or support it? So uh, as Steve talked about, you know, if there is underreporting and polling, the place that you would identify it is a difference between live person interviewing, so people who are called on a phone, cell phone, or, or a telephone, and then in the online panel polls. And we looked for this in 2016 and didn't find, in fact, oftentimes we would find smaller leads for Trump on the online panels than we would on the telephone, which is the opposite of the um, ex of what you would find. But let me tell you the the way that secret Trump voting would ha would happen is, you know, people people don't understand like, okay, why why when this polling lead was like eight points, you get to the election, does it end up being four points or much more narrow? And the reason is because ultimately in any election, you, with partisanship and party ID being so important to vote choice, what matters is that turnout, um, you know, that turnout urgency. And although Democrats, my model is about negative partisanship and how fired up Democrats are and all this angst that you're talking about is all like, that, that's the juice that my model drinks. So it's like so excited to hear it, right? But what people forget is that although Donald Trump is objectively terrible at being president, Republicans love him. And they showed up, they did not decrease their turnout the way uh, Democrats did during the midterms, during Obama. Republicans actually increased their turnout in that 2018 midterm. And my expectation is that we're going to see through the roof turnout in this um, 2020 election from Republican identifiers. So if, you know, if there's a secret Trump voter, guys, is what I'm trying to tell you is Republicans are going to vote. They are going to vote in big numbers and you know if democrats and independents and and lean indies don't vote or can't vote that's where you're going to see those polling margins get shrunk okay we're it, we're almost getting to the point where we're going to ask for your predictions at the end of the show but before we get there i want to ask the converse is there a secret biden voter you never hear anybody ask that is there a secret biden voter steve kornacki what do you think yeah, I don't, you know, the reason I said earlier I'm open to the possibility of the, you know, the so-called secret Trump voter is just, you, you, there's some polling data out there recently. There was one from, uh, I think this was the Cato Institute the other day, that's a libertarianist group, but they were asking folks today, you know, do they feel some need to hide their political views from others um, in workplace settings and in social settings? And you found that folks who, who said they thought of themselves as generally conservative, um, large numbers were saying that. Um, now, it, it just I don't know if that's going to translate into anything in terms of, you know, I, I wouldn't say to anybody that I'm going to vote for Trump. I wouldn't write it down. Um, but maybe in the voting booth, my true self comes out. I, I think what I'm saying is I'm, I'm open to the possibility. I, I do think there's something in the climate right now where you've got a lot more folks on the right politically saying and thinking that than on the left. 
So I'm, I'm open to that translating into something. I, again, small. I'm not talking about a, a five-point thing here, a ten-point thing. I'm not talking about something that would make Trump right. win, given the polls you're, you're seeing right now. Um, but I don't see you know, any of the, the, the numbers I've seen out there recently. Um, you know, I don't see that, um, that hesitation uh, you know, to say it in terms of Biden. And, and again, just you know, the, the Biden formula here, um, you know, we, we've seen it already. It's, it's basically to get in metro areas around the country uh, what Democrats were able to get in 2018. It's it's to tell people, you know, it almost this isn't about Biden. This isn't about for the being for the Democratic Party. This is about getting rid of Donald Trump. This is about saying we can't have Trump for four more years. And that kind of message um, worked very well. Uh, the idea of putting a check on him did in 2018. And I think it's, it's an extension of that they're running on in 2020. And um, you're seeing you saw in the 18 midterms and you're seeing in the polling of those you know same groups right now. You're seeing that uh, uh, it's reflected very much in the polling. We have one final video question, which really goes to the heart of something, again, that a lot of folks watching this broadcast asked about. And we're going to have Philip ask that question right now. Hi, this is Philip from New York. My question is, what type of voter suppression do you see potentially happening in the 2020 presidential race? And what do you think its impact will be? David, the red flags on the whole notion of voter suppression, meddling, interference, shenanigans. We've had people who have written to us and said they're going to steal the election. The, the anxiety about him not leaving, if Mr. Trump, if he's, if he's uh, defeated. There's a huge, huge cloud. Uh, but let's start with the voter suppression. What do you think? Look, I think voter suppression has been a factor in, uh, in, in recent elections. It'll be a factor here, but it's going to be magnified by all the uncertainties around voting uh, that are created by COVID-19. We don't know, um, you know how many polling places are going to be open in uh, many of these uh, communities. We've seen, in, in particularly in communities of color, polling places uh, shut down. Uh, we don't know how uh, states are going to be uh, be processing uh, large volumes of uh, mail-in uh, ballots, and there's been resistance on the part of the White House and the Congress in provi to uh, providing additional, significant additional funding to handle that volume. So there are a lot of questions and a lot of concerns, and that would be a place where I would be focusing a lot of attention, and I'm sure they are, if I were the Biden campaign, and I'd be marshalling an army of observers and, and an army of lawyers to monitor this uh, entire process. I will say the, the worry is not just about the outcome of the election, but as was mentioned by, uh, by the questioner uh, and by you, Jane, the worry is what happens after the election. Uh, poor Steve Kornacki may be standing at his board for weeks uh, as these ballots are being counted. Uh, you know, the, the experience in California is that it takes them weeks to determine in, in close races who's won because they count ballots after uh, election day. So the, the potential for a really messy election is uh, is very much there. And it is a uh, it's a big concern, not just for the Biden campaign, but it's a concern for the country uh, because, there, you know, the president has made clear that he thinks that there are two potential outcomes to this election. One is that he wins or the other is that the election was rigged. Uh, and if the election results are counted over a matter of days instead of a matter of hours, that's only going to lend impetus to that kind of impugning of the integrity of the system. Uh, and that could work either way, honestly. So um, there are big concerns about 
about voting in 2020. Steve, let me ask you, because you may be parked at the big board for a while, what is your sense? Because we just New York State alone with their primary, I think they're still waiting for results to come in. We don't have a great track record so far. We've had a lot of turnout, which is very, very exciting on both sides. Um, and yet the vote by mail thing is a wild card. We don't quite know how that's going to work. What is your sense as to when you're going to be calling the races? Is it going to be that night? Is it going to be a week later? Is it go Do you have any sense of that at all? Can you possibly? Uh, my sense right now is few, if any, that night, just, just based on what we're seeing right now in, in the methodology. Um, you mentioned New York. The, the New York State Congressional primary was June 23rd. There's a member of Congress, a Democrat right. named Carolyn Maloney, who may very well be unseated. And we may finally find out tomorrow, July 27th, uh, who won that election. So more than a month there in right. New York State. I think that's an right. extreme example in New York State. What we've I've been paying close attention here in the primaries. Um, and what I'm seeing is Texas. Uh, Texas is not going to have, at least right now, is not going to have massive mail in voting like we've seen in other states. And Texas, for its recent primary, was able to get a lot of votes counted very quickly. A lot of votes counted same night. I'm wondering if Texas is going to be in that category on election night. I'm wondering if a few other states are going to be in that category where maybe we can't call the winner, but maybe we've got 75% of the vote in in Texas. And maybe what we're seeing with 75% of the vote in in Texas is telling us something. Oh, wow, you know, Joe Biden's a couple thousand votes behind Donald Trump. He's two points behind Donald Trump. He's ahead. Something like that. Even if you don't know the result in Texas, if it's that close with that many votes counted in a state that Trump won by nine points in 2016, I think that's a harbinger. We wouldn't call the election anything like that, but I think that would offer a pretty big clue. If you were to have Florida, let, let's see what happens in Florida. Um, but again, if you were able to get a lot of votes counted in Florida, and this is a state where, you know, there has been no election that's been double digits presidential wise in Florida since 1988. It's a state, obviously, Trump won in 2016. If you've got a lot of votes counted in Florida and Biden's ahead by four or five, six points, anything like that, I'm just saying hypothetically here, again, maybe not enough even to call Florida, certainly not enough to call the presidential race. But I do think at that point, you got a pretty good hint there, a pretty hint, a pretty big clue about what's going on. So my, my mind right now is there. Which states are we going to get a large number of votes from on election night. And if they're all pointing in one direction, I think that'll be telling us something. Rachel, let me ask you about the voter fraud. And again, when you think these results are going to yeah, be Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, the only states we're going to get large amounts of votes from on election night are the states that refuse to, to accommodate their voters to not have to vote in person in a pandemic, right? So, you know, I, I think Steve's absolutely right, though. If we were looking at 75% of the returns from Texas and they're suggestive of a Biden win or a very close race and it's Texas and it's 75% of the results, it's going to be a pretty good clue as to what to expect. But I, I do think everyone that does have a platform um, for election analysis, you know, it, it definitely want, you definitely want to start normalizing the con, you know, concept of not having an election night result because the president will be working on the other side to delegitimize the results. And, and, you know, it's not hyperbolic for, um, you know, David Axelrod to say, you know, the president will have two results and he'll, he'll be shopping the one that he won or the one that was, you know, he, he claims massive, mm -hmm. 
fraud, right? And that's it's it's, a, it's a, an absolutely astounding thing in a democracy, especially one that proclaims itself the world's greatest democracy, to be to be saying that about its president. And so we should probably take a second to pause and to to think about that that the that that's the current status of our current president. Uh, at this point, because we are almost out of time, we do want to see if any of you are willing to go on the record and predict who will win the House or what, what the majority might be in the House and whether or not the Senate will stay in Republican hands or whether it will indeed flip. And of course, uh, who will win the presidency. So, so Steve, I'm going to start with you. Are you, are you comfortable? Have you ever done that? I mean, are you allowed to do that? Oh, I've I've made some uh, some horrible predictions before. I remember saying Scott Brown couldn't win the Massachusetts Senate race in 2010, my home state. I said, take it from me. I'm from Massachusetts. And then I watched him beat Martha Coakley. So, no, I think I learned then don't make predictions. I mean, I do feel, look, if, if it's if the polling holds up at this level, you know, into the fall to Election Day, I would have a very hard, if not impossible time telling you, here's how Trump wins the election. But I'm open to the possibility, as I said, I'm open to the possibility that things change. Um, I, I believe the key here is assessments of Trump's performance on coronavirus. I, I'm just speculating wildly here. A massive medical breakthrough, a vaccine, a second wave that doesn't emerge in the fall, um, a president who defies all expectations and suddenly is somewhat disciplined in his communication on this. I think back to the final week, the 10 days of the 2016 campaign, when his folks succeeded in taking his phone away from him and getting him to stand on stage and just read from the, the script. So I just allowing for those possibilities. Who knows? But again, if it's if it's like it is right now, um, it's pretty lopsided right now. Rachel, I know you're willing to go on the record. Um, let's start with Let's start with the House. Or is the House, are they going to, how many seats do you think they might pick up, the Democrats? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking, I mean, we were looking at almost uh, 10 or so before the pandemic effect got added in, right? And so I think we really are looking at, you know, probably 12 or so, maybe more. Um, we're looking at just, you know, a, do a half dozen right now in Texas possibly. <laughs> uh, I just added Florida 18 to my ratings today. That's that's actually getting announced for the first time here. That's a seat held by Brian Mast. It's actually surprising to me that, um, you know, other people haven't picked up on it. It's got a great candidate. It isn't yet been identified by the D trip, but I, I think it's probably going to be eventually. I mean, Florida you know, Florida's kind of ground zero for the don't kill your constituents, right? And I used to have a different number one rule for my um, elect, when I teach people how to do election strategy, I had a different rule, which was never overestimate the intelligence of the electorate. You can't talk to them, and this is where Democrats would generally go wrong. So, you know, usually I'm talking about um, the differences between the party committees, not so much presidential campaigns. So the RNC versus the DNC, when I talk about superior electioneering uh, capabilities. But uh, this is where the D Democrats generally break this rule. They send very, um, you know, wonky uh, direct mailers with lots of details on it. Uh, the elect, the voters are very imagistic and usually you have about the time it takes to take something out of a mailbox to put it, you know, into the brain. But anyway, my new number one rule, thanks to Donald Trump, don't kill your voters. Just don't do it. And, uh, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, the Senate, uh, the Senate, like the pivot seat for that, because we're really looking at 
North Car um, uh, Colorado and Arizona being sherbets, and then I had Maine kind of like more, a little bit more iffy because it's a, it's a different, it's not a turnout surge scenario, it's a persuasion state. But now I have, I'm actually updating those races today. I've got Maine going from lean D to likely D and I'm adding Georgia right, let's special, just tell, right? Okay, so I've let got me the just, Senate. Let me just add, let me jump. And it's flipping, yeah. Okay, but, but for, for, Maine, for Maine, because it's a very high profile race, people will wanna know that you're talking about the Susan Collins race, yeah. uh, Susan Collins, Senator Collins, who's being challenged by Sarah Gideon. So yeah. you're saying you think that race is going Gideon. Yeah, right? yes, I do. Yes. Yes, I think and you Collins think Arizona a nice is ride, but this that Trump has done her in. Yep. Arizona's going to Mark yeah. Kelly, you think? Definitely. When, and when certain demographics meet fantastic candidate, you know? Terrific Colorado candidate. to John Hickenlooper? Oh yes. What what about Iowa? Have you so changed the, uh, the status of Iowa? Yeah, that's where we start to get interesting because you know, before the pandemic, we were really looking at can the Democrats pick up a fourth seat because they were going to lose Alabama. And it was like, okay, they had North Carolina and Iowa and possibly Kansas if Kobash is the nominee and Montana, but it was all tough paths, right? The pandemic has really opened that up. So they have the potential now to, to pay, take that majority and pick up some padding. I would argue um, the Iowa Democratic primary for that Senate was so good that the Republican legislature met right after and tried to figure out how to make it harder to vote in the general election. I'm not kidding, you can Google that. So I understand it's a fluid situation, but at this point you're looking at, because Democrats would need four seats to flip the, se yep. the Senate. What, and you're looking at, as of today, how many that oh. you're sure of? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're going to pick the four, the fourth being North Carolina, and then they've got um, Maine, Arizona, and Colorado. And then it's a question of, can they go beyond that? That's what I would say today. Right. Yeah. But I, I think I have Arizona, I think I have okay. North Carolina as a, as a toss up on my ratings. And then All in right. the house, uh, I, I think we're looking at another 10 right now, probably which also yeah. is a fluid situation. All right, we're gonna be watching, we're gonna be watching what you call the, what is it, election nerd Disneyland show that you do, That's which is the election right. whisperer. Yeah. We're gonna be watching that, and I'm gonna head over to let David Axelrod wrap this up, because I already know that David Axelrod is not going to be predicting how many seats we're picking up in the house, is my guess. So, in, or, or will you? I, I shouldn't no, no, no. I should well, give well, you well, the chance. Well, well. I'll be brief because Rachel said it all, but uh, I think that, uh, I do think that uh, Democrats, that their ambitions have expanded in the House, and you could see 10 to 12 new uh, Democrats in the House. I think uh, they're sitting in a good spot relative to the Senate, um, and, you know, uh, Montana, uh, I think, plays in that with Governor Bullock. I think, uh, you know, one or both of the Georgia races uh, are a potential for them. So uh, I do think that you're looking right now as we sit here today, because I want to use the Steve Kornacki disclaimer and say things can change. But uh, right now, I think they're in a very good position. And then in terms of the presidency, um, you know, at current course and speed, uh, Joe Biden is going to be president. And I don't see 
the president. I mean, their strategy is interesting to me. Uh, we talked about suburban voters at length. Their strategy to get suburban voters apparently is to scare them into believing that this dystopia will take place if, if Joe Biden becomes president and that, uh, you know, this law and order candidacy will uh, tell. And I, I don't think that that is in tune with the times, particularly with those suburban uh, voters. So I, I think Biden is in a good position right now. A hundred days is a long time, but I think that he will win. One note I would watch for, uh, at some point, Mitch McConnell is going to make a judgment about his candidates. And there may be a subtle shift in messaging between candidates who are running with Donald Trump and candidates who start delivering a message that we need a voice. We're going to, you're going to need a voice in the Senate to resist the radical left uh, uh, ideas of Joe Biden and the Democrats. Uh, and when that happens, you'll know that uh, McConnell and the Senate Republicans have made a judgment about what Donald Trump's uh, what Donald Trump's prospects are in the fall. And can I just how, how much time? How much time? If I'm sorry, Rachel, go ahead. I, and I was going to say, uh, when that happens, what I would like to do is make sure that they can't escape Donald Trump. I would like to tie them to them like an albatross. You know. <laughs> okay. Um, Yes. So the question I was about to ask, David, is that how much time early voting starts September 19th? So Republicans, yes. you often hear this, if they're going to jump ship, how much time do they really have to do that? I think Donald Trump has a very, he has a, a month here. He's got his convention at the end of the month. Uh, he has embarked on trying to uh, redeem himself relative to the coronavirus. He has to hope for some luck on the coronavirus, some improvement uh, in the coronavirus. But uh, I think those judgments are going to be made around Labor Day. Um, because as you point okay. out, voting is right around the corner. But I agree with Rachel, it's hard to run away from a president of your own party. People have tried to do it for time immemorial. Uh, I think that's the reason the Republicans are in some trouble here relative to holding on to the Senate. Okay, the last question, David, for those who really have lost faith and are verklempt, and are clutching the pearls, the Democrats and the Republicans who feel that it's going to, there's going to be cheating and there's whatever they think. What's your best pitch as to why people should vote? Well, I mean, I think the stakes should be very, very clear to people in this election. And, you know, frankly, uh, to be fair about it, you may feel them on both sides, but <clears throat> one thing Donald Trump has done is he paints, he paints in primary colors uh, and the, you know, it's very, very clear, um, sort of how he approaches government and how he governs. And if you, uh, feel like this is the wrong direction for the country and there are, there's damage being done, this is the corrective device that democracy hands us. You can change the course of history, uh, by voting, uh, on November 3rd. And, uh, you know, if you, if you sit it out, you're essentially voting with your feet and you may end up with a result that you don't that you don't want. And I think, you know, in the past, the question has been, are we better off than we were four years ago? And that's a relevant question. The question for 2020 is, can we really go on for another four years like the last four? Uh, and I think that's going to end up being the decisive question of the 2020 campaign. I want to thank all of our guests for their generosity and for donating their time and talent. 
I'd also like to thank you for listening and for staying with us. We hope you'll join us next time when we're going to have former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, and Ambassador Wendy Sherman. They'll be talking about America's standing in the world and how that's changed in the last three and a half years and what could lie ahead. The live virtual town hall will take place on August 16th. You can learn more and register to join at conversationsonthegreen.com. The Conversations on the Green podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Our producer is Jay Holt.